Martina Beiermann wrote a book that makes you feel uncomfortable in a good way. Because I think by feeling uncomfortable, sometimes we grow, right? It forces you to make a different movement, something that you can do to get away from the discomfort. She wrote a book about why we all exclude, why we look at others and think they're less good than we are. And that's in itself uncomfortable, right? That idea that we all do that. But even more uncomfortable is that we do that without thinking that we do it. She explains why, what, how, and I think this is a must for everybody to listen to. She also gives some really good tips on where you can start to find out what your own unconscious biases are and how you can try and counter them. Have fun and thanks for listening. Martina Beyerman is a Dutch author and legal scholar and currently lives in the USA. Her main research interests are democracy, rule of law, and inclusion versus exclusion. She has obtained her PhD on democratic legitimacy on international lawmaking. In her book, Vreemde Eende, I think you would probably say strange ducks in English, um, which was published in 2021 with publisher Podium, she explores the tension between our democratic ideals of equality and freedom and the harsh reality of exclusion, ranging from racism, homophobia, and everything in between. She examines the role of group dynamics, the media, and unconscious biases and concepts such as power, fear, shame, and status. By bundling scientific research and interviews with leading scholars and thinkers, Martine tries to find answers to depressing questions. Why do we exclude other people? Who benefits from exclusion? And why is there so much resistance to talk about it? Um, this is a very interesting studio where we are today. I am in Amsterdam. I am in the artist neighborhood. Uh, artist is um, a very famous Amsterdam zoo. And we are in a housing setting, very cute little Amsterdam house. And we have Martina here in Amsterdam as well, which is a hooray because you live in New York. That's Welcome. correct. Yeah, I live in Connecticut, the state right above New York state. But indeed, it's like a 50-minute drive to Manhattan. It's the suburbs of New York, as they say. Yeah, Pretty inspiring place to write a book on inclusion and exclusion, huh? True, true. We moved in um, 2016, in the summer of 2016. That was a couple of months before Donald Trump was elected. So um, I think I lived in the States for one and a half years, two years. And then I decided I wanted to explore the question of exclusion and understand it better. So what's happening? And with my background in legal theory and democracy theory, I knew a lot about all the institutional preconditions we need to make democracy work. But the realization that it's up to us, the people, to actually make democracy work uh, was, was challenging for me. Because as a lawyer, as a, as a legal scholar, I wasn't trained in understanding how dynamics between groups of people would work. Uh, and at the same time, while reading the newspapers or following the campaign of both candidates or like just having a look at politics here in the Netherlands or in the States, I felt there's so much polarization, so much hate, so much distrust. And why? 
Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna try and answer that question. I know you do that quite well in the book, uh, which I of course read. It's wonderful. It's a really good read, so I recommend it to everybody. Um, but before we dive into the book, the topic, I want to know a little bit just more about you. So you're a legal expert. You're a writer. Um, what did you want to do when you were a kid? Did you want to be a writer? Did you want to have anything to do with researching homophobia, racism, etc.? Uh, I think when I was young, uh, primary school age, I really enjoyed writing. So it was always something that came natural to me. Um, I think what I wanted to be was a vet for a long time. And then I wanted to be a pastry chef. So I had <laughs> quite <laughs> broad interest and I think I still am interested in a lot of different things. But I think during um, middle school, high school, I felt um, I want to do something with international affairs, maybe diplomacy or um, something that had to do with social justice on, on a bigger scale than just uh, yeah what you can experience in one country. So I had that international aspect. I was always interested in that. And law for me was kind of a, a solid base to work from. And only in the fifth year or the fourth year of my studies, I felt the true connection with my passion and it was constitutional law. So I love law, but not as, as a system of rules, but just as the concepts of rule of law or how do we organize our society and how do we make sure that one um, aspect of our society doesn't get uh, too much power and how do we make sure that the parliament can actually control government. So the big questions of law uh, really intrigue me. And when you started writing the book, so one of the early arguments in the book uh, essentially is that we all... We all exclude, right? We all include and we all exclude. That's that's basically what we do. But you saw something else as well, namely that that perhaps threatens democracy. So it's not only something that we do and that might be mean to other people or meaning that we do not select certain candidates for jobs, but you also see it as something bigger that is actually threatening society, right? Yeah, I was primarily interested in the paradox, what I saw is that everybody is very vocal about our democratic ideals. I think everybody is saying out loud, I love equality, I love freedom, everybody is equal. Um, whereas in practice, with the examples you just um, named, you see that there's inequality practically everywhere on all different levels and skills of society. So Even in schools, you mentioned, like schools with little children already Excluding, yeah, exclu include, right? I mean, exclusion is the, the, the kind of logical um, consequence of inclusion. And I think we as uh, human beings, we, we function in groups. So one of the main um, insights for me was that exclusion doesn't have to be uh, related to hate straight away. It, mostly it has to do more with the love you feel for your own group. So we need our groups. We need our groups since the beginning of humankind just to protect ourselves. And the importance of the group for us, not only for protection, but also for our identity formation, um, our feeling of belonging, makes us extremely dependent on the group itself. And the fact that we want to be part of our group so badly also means that we're kind of indifferent to everybody that is outside of our group. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we don't trust them or that we hate them or that they're extra um, specific feelings attached to it. It's just indifference. It's we don't feel much. So it's kind of warm in between our own group and we and we like our group and we need it. And we're not too much concerned with what happens outside. 
But the problem is that the moment we uh, are confronted with societal challenges, like economic um, um, situations where you maybe lose your job, you feel like, oh, wait a second, that might have to do with the other instead of with me. And I looked at this problem from very different angles. So um, you can take a more philosophic approach to it or a biological approach to this or a, a psychological approach to it. And you talk to experts from all these fields, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they enlightened me on all the reasons why we do that. And because it started almost as a personal investigation, uh, or so it seems like I was fascinated. I saw this kind of paradox going on. What did you learn while writing the book? For me, I think it was most important to understand that we as humans have to be more self-reflective about this issue. And mm. that, that starts with um, reflecting on your own intentions, the choices you make in your own life, and also realizing, and that was one of the <laughs> very interesting insights I gained from the, uh, the talks with the social psychologists. They told me every human being in the end thinks that he or she is uh, morally superior. So in general, people tend to overestimate themselves in all their capacities. <laughs> so we tend to think of ourselves as being a good um, person, uh, or sportsman or hmm. a good person or a good scholar, or a good student. But especially when you look into our moral consciousness, we feel very confident with our own ability to uh, to tell what's, what's wrong and what's right or what is fair and unfair. The only problem is that because of our kind of overestimation of our morality, we're not keen on reflecting on the, the choices we make ourselves. Yeah. And the problem with exclusion is that um, you can talk about the extreme forms of exclusion that you that you are inherently um, embodying and 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 vocalizing uh, racial beliefs, for example. But the biggest part of of discrimination or exclusion is happening in your unconscious part yeah. of your brain. Yeah. But the issue is if you consciously think that you have everything aligned <laughs> and you're very inclusive, you, you find it hard to believe that unconsciously there are all kinds of biases happening that are actually influencing the way you look at the other. And that was for me very, very insightful. And also understanding that um, things like your in-group love makes us really aware of the nuances in our own group. So we're very good at making distinctions in our own group, seeing the nuances, making... Um, even even just with your eyesight, yeah. being able to see differences in faces, for example. Like Western European people will say there's a lot of variety in Western European faces, but not so much in Asian faces, while Asian people will say exactly the opposite, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we all make concepts in our head, because otherwise we wouldn't function. So you have to do something with the constant flow of information, and we have to categorize it in our head, because otherwise we we're practically paralyzed by doing nothing. So all those automatic systems in our brains makes it really easy to, you know, drive a car or to um, um, yeah. tie oh, your shoes, yeah. do automatic things. But the problem is that we also build automatic concepts in our head that reflect on how we think about the other. Yeah. And the, the, if you combine those aspects and know that you're not that aware of differences in another group, you're, you're starting to generalize easier. And the generalizations you make about the other are also based on the stories we humans tend to tell each other over the centuries, decades on. And this in say, it's, it's just so important to understand that that is actually happening and just to reflect on it for yourself. Like, how do I relate to those stories? Um, 
do I generalize the and other can or we, not? Can we, can, before we do that, because I think it's actually a nice exercise, can we make this concrete? So for the Unmachine Yourself podcast, we have a lot of people um, from the corporate section listening. So what if you're a manager and you have a team? And we hear a lot from companies nowadays. I think it's very popular, and I don't mean to say this disrespectfully. It's also very important, but lots of companies say, we want to become more diverse, right? We want to be inclusive. But then we often find they don't really know what it means or they think they are already pretty inclusive, but from the outside, it still looks very um, homogeneous, for example. So how can you even start, say, say I'm a manager in a pastry shop. Let's go back to your childhood dream, right? And I look at my team and I think, well, you know, I, I don't know, are we, you know, there's a person from another ethnic background, there's a person with darker skin, there's one disabled person in my team. Am I now inclusive? How do you even know what that is? What will you advise me? Yeah, I think um, many people ask me for practical advice. Like, what are the, the, the practical steps I can take to make something more inclusive? I think you're right about the symbolic um, value of talking about inclusion and, and diversity. Um, but I think it has more to do with actually taking time before you make decisions. If Whether it is a decision about your company, uh, a strategic decision, or maybe an HR decision, um, just take the time to organize your procedures in a way that you diminish the chances that you give in to those implicit biases. Because is that how it works? If you if you take a decision really quickly, then I have a larger chance that my unconscious bias take control? Is that how it works? That's exactly what it is, because we have to do something with... Uh, if you have to make a decision in a very quick time, you will rely on the, uh, the preconceived images you have or the, the things that you're not even aware of, but you have, a, you have an idea. And that also has to do with this... Um, availability heuristics. So you're more easily um, gluing concepts with each other when they're more easily available to you. Hmm. But your brain at the same time thinks that because they're more available, they're also more trustworthy. So you rely easily on your own judgment about the other uh, because you've heard stories about it. This is where the media comes in, for example. So if you're aware of all these unconscious biases, you can take procedural steps. For example, um, what I learned from an HR um, manager was that if you have like um, objective criteria, more or less, and you have, for example, five new candidates, it is way more um, reliable if you want to um, reach a uh, sort of neutral decision to look at those um, criteria one by one per person. So you, you, you don't just hmm. uh, go through the whole list of criteria for one person and then goes to the other, because that gives you kind of space to lean into your favoritism again, lean into your tendency to um, seek for another colleague that is look like you or has the same ideas as you. And everybody knows that a diversity of ideas is better for the result of your business. So we all know, we all value it, but it's still, it's a matter of putting it into practice. And it, that takes time and it takes effort. And I think it's not so much the practical steps you can take because it's also easy to look that up or to, to find new um, procedures. It's more about the willingness. How, how willing are you to actually make your uh, workforce, for example, more inclusive? And that also means that, again, probably I might think, think of myself that I'm not doing that, right? I'm not having a favorite uh, just by intuition. I'm not having a 
preferred candidate just by, you know, looking at the name or remembering like, oh, she worked for that company. I like that company a lot. And so if you, if you, if you're unwilling or unable to reflect on yourself and kind of be critical towards yourself there, then I can see that you might not be willing to really spread out the factors that you want to have weighed in and just, you know, you're just enthusiastically reading through the letters and it seems like you're doing a great job. I had this discussion with my students of the University of Amsterdam. I teach a course called uh, Sustainable Humanity and we were talking about would it be a good idea if algorithms would take over my grading? And there's actually something to say for that. I say no because I think I'm a bit more flexible than algorithms nowadays and I give more extensive feedback, but I will probably also have my favorite students. Um, and I think it works like this. I will always try to be neutral, but if it's a really good student and he or she created a really lousy essay, I will probably still give him or her an okay grade because I think, you know, oh, but you're so good. You probably just had a bad day, yeah, and this which is not fair. No, and this is the funny part about um, the fact that we make this homogeneous image of the other, whereas we're very keen on differences in our own group. So if you you can contextualize the story of your student quite well, yeah. you, you under, you're, the, you're willing to understand um, the conditions, or maybe uh, he or she shared with you a story about his sick mother and yeah. it took him too long and that's why, and, and you're willing to take that into account. So you're willing to take external factors of that story into account. Whereas with the other, we're very uh, likely to prescribe the same conditions as a character trace of the other. Like, oh yeah, he's just not able to do it because this or this or this or that. And that's the danger. So you're right. And the, the fun part about this is that I wrote this book specifically for the group that doesn't relate to this topic. So we're, we're used to talk about the perpetrators, right? Um, and actual races. Exactly. Or, yeah. So we, we tend to focus on the victim stories, which is very important because they need a platform and we have to discuss this. And we, we tend to focus on the, the ones that did it badly or were wrong. And it's very easy to just be the bystander in this respect and look at both stories and just not relate. Judge the ones that... that oh, but I wrong, wouldn't but do I that. I would yeah. never do that. Yeah. And maybe just um, sort of feel sorry maybe for, for victims in this respect. Whereas this, this mass of people that's just standing there are actually the one, the, what I call in the book, like the silent majority. They are the one that are just, you know, fueling the social norms, just sticking to their own routines, not, not willing to actually change something in their own daily life. Whereas it starts at a very small scale. It starts obviously also with um, going to the ballot box or go vote, but it also starts with how do I appreciate my neighborhood? With whom do I talk with if I go to my work? Uh, how inclusive am I? I agree. And I, I want to go back. You said the word indifference a couple of times, right? And I think that might be one of those subtle ways in which we are actually excluding. And I was thinking of well, if we take the example back of the pastry chef, chef manager, um, if they're looking for candidates, oftentimes you hear, we want to be more inclusive, but then we only find candidates, we only know really good people that are pretty similar to us. Like we don't know people from a different background. We don't know gender fluid people. We don't know, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever you want to. I, I think 
that might be a result of the indifference. It might be, it's just really hard to step outside of your own bubble because it, it would mean that you have to actively search and approach people you don't know yet. Yeah, and then it's a matter of prioritizing because it takes time and effort. And that's just also the truth. It's not an easy task. So it also depends on how important you find this, this quest for diversity or yeah. inclusion and how willing you are to put effort in it. And the fun, there's one example I really loved and it's about a Boston orchestra. And for years and years and years, they were struggling with this issue of how come that it's just not uh, gender balanced. So how come we have so many male violin players <laughs> and so little women? And they were trying and they were trying to um, make it more attractive to work there. And um, and at a certain moment they said, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful to say, but we just think that the, that the male violin players are, are better. And then they started to do their uh, selection um, behind a closed curtain and in, I think only three years time, they were able to come to that 50-50 uh, female-male uh, balance in their own orchestra. Wow. But it's just one person that has to say, uh, maybe it's it's us, you know, yeah. maybe it's us with our favoritism or with our biases that we're just more uh, inclined to combine the concepts of a very virtuous, good violin player with a male. And yeah. if we're not willing to, to kind of trick our own brain yeah. <laughs> and to put a, a curtain right in front of us. But it's so interesting to to hear you say, you you probably do it, but you will not notice that you're doing it, right? And that has to do with the unconscious bias, but also with our tendency to overestimate our moral judgments. Um, so to think, to think we're better or more fair than we are. So how, I mean, I know you're not, you know, you're, a legal scholar, you're, you're not a coach for people to become better people at inclusivity, but how can I, if, I, if I'm not aware of my unconscious biases and I, I might be a person who says, I'm, I, I don't have any, how do I find them? Like, how do you research your own unconscious But How did you do that for yourself? I think it's the first step is obviously to know that they're there. Yeah. And there's this one tool um, and it's available for everyone and it's online and it's called the Implicit Association Test. And it's developed by Harvard scholars, uh, by uh, Mazarin Banaji and um, Anthony Greenwald, and they wrote a book about it. And it's called The Hidden Bias of Good People. Um, and the test is available to everyone. You can do it. Um, they actually measure your... Um, the, uh, the speed with which you connect different concepts. So you have, uh, and they, they do it, um, you can do it on all different topics. So there's, mm. as we spoke about, there's so many grounds for exclusion, right? There are so many uh, issues. Let's, let's say disabled, able people. Yeah. So there are some words that we naturally connect to able people and some to disabled people. Yeah. And they measure how quickly you can relate to those concepts. So they mix it up and it takes you like, I don't know, 15 minutes. But it's very confronting to mm. see. So even, and then uh, there's another thing. It takes a lot of practice to actually sharpen your mind. Uh, and you lose your capacity <laughs> to look with your inclusive perspective quite easily when you step into another identity. That's also something mm. very interesting that, that Jay van Bavel shared with me. He said like for 24 hours, you're pretty, if you are aware and you're willing to look with a non-biased lens, for example, when you are grading, um, 
When you step out of the door of the university and you go and pick up some groceries or you go and pick up your daughter or you go yeah. do whatever, suddenly you're switching into a new identity. And it's very hard huh. to maintain the same kind of um, intellectual humbleness or whatever you used to look through the, the, the essays to maintain that in other identities too. But the good part is that you can train it. Yeah, that is good. That, that is, is good. <laughs> so you can, hopeful. So oh, the well, first, it, it the first step effort. would be to even allow the reality that even if you think you're not doing it, yeah. you're probably doing it. And even activists that are working in the field of anti-racism, that are, uh, for example, black themselves, they also discover that when they do that implicit association test, they, they also have this have, yeah. bias in favor of white people. That's the, all the research that has been done in, in America. And this is very confrontational. And that also tells us it's not an individual problem. It's a collective problem because we're all ingrained with ideas about the other, yeah. with myth, with storytelling for over centuries yeah. that are very hard to break. And another Positive fact is that you can change this also when you go into conversations with children, especially children in between, let's say, six years and eight years old. Hmm. They are very willing to have an inclusive mindset hmm. and they're very open to learn. They just, you know, soak everything in. And the only um, restriction again is that many parents find that age for children way too young to start to have discussions about, for example, anti-Semitism or homophobia or Islamophobia or whatever, because they feel like, no, we want to protect our kid from that type of topics because this is not relevant for them. They're so young and we're all colorblind and we all, we are not biased. So the, 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 the true uh, pain in this story is that if you are parents um, of children that are already part of a marginalized group, obviously, you were confronted with this issue of exclusion from a very young age yeah, already. And so, and so your parents will tell you about it because yeah. they have to help yeah. you prepare. Yeah. If, if you go to a school and they never celebrate your religious um, festivities, no. yeah. um, then, then you already know that, oh, I do something different. I believe in something different. Apparently, that's 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 not what is worth celebrating for the rest of my school. It, it, it isn't. So you are aware of what is a dominant norm yeah. and how do I... Uh, how do I relate to this? I once heard a, um, I forgot his name, but it, it's it's an activist. Um, and he said something that made me cry because I realized it's true. Um, he said, I had to, I chose to teach my boys that they live in America. He's black. They're, the boys are black as well. If they drive in a car and they're being stopped by the police, he taught his boys to act really slowly, to move really slowly, as not to scare the police so they wouldn't shoot, which is obviously a problem there. And I realized if you're 12 or 16 and your dad teaches you that this, white people would never think of teaching their children that because it's not necessary. And that must be a huge difference growing up. There's right? a very good book. Um, and that was one of the first books I read uh, when I started to do this research. And it's written by a white uh, journalist. And I'm telling that because it's relevant for the story. Yeah. And he, uh, the title is, he is uh, his name is Chris, 
Chris Hayes, and the name of the book is um, A Colony in a Nation. And he's describing that although America, and this is all, we are more aware of this obviously now and after the, 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 the death and the murder of George Floyd. So it's more into our conscious, uh, consciousness at, at this phase. But when I started in 2018, this was fairly new. And he actually said this whole legal system is just a complete different system for if you're BIPOC or if you're white. For some people in America, America feels as a colony, and for some it feels as a nation. So some feel protected, others don't. So, and, yeah. yeah. And, and if we would... But you, yeah, you can make the same comparison for the Netherlands for, to a certain for extent. For the Netherlands, or even, I think, for companies where you'll see that some people will say, oh, no, we're super inclusive, and other people think... Oh, yeah. yeah. No, you have no idea how I feel, right? Yeah, there was one that is such a, such a telling research. There was <laughs> two, actually. One is that the, um, obviously we're all working towards grasping what an ally means. Everybody wants to be an ally yeah. in, the, in the fight for, for, for non-exclusion, so to say. So there was this um, survey. I think seven or 8,000 people um, participated. And... They asked white employees, do you consider yourself an ally? And 90% said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm an ally. I'm totally in favor of everything. And then they discovered that only 10% of the Latinx and black employees felt actually supported by the white allies. Mm -hmm. And this is not to bash or to blame. No. Yeah. This is just a just to show that there's such a big difference between what we think we do and we actually do and what we think we think and actually think. And the same for female leadership. That's interesting in this respect. Um, if you would ask straight away, do you like to have a female um, employer, a female leader? Every Well, this is again American uh, research, but I, I, I guess it might have a, a parallel here. Everybody would say, yeah, no problem, of course. Then they did other research to cross these outcomes of the qualitative research with the implicit association test and also other tests. And then it turned out that employees, male and female, rather give in money, just hand over part of their salary, than to work for a female leader, wow. under a female leader. So that says something about... Um, and they weren't aware of that. No. So it says something about the work we have to do. Uh, and for me, it's all about the willingness to reflect and be intellectually humble. And you can do that also in your workforce by just trying. And then we come to more, what kind of competencies do you need? Well, empathy is a big thing. So try to put, not so much put yourself in, in somebody else's shoes, but just listen to different perspectives. And even if there's in your boardroom, there's no different perspective. Just try to challenge yourself and come up with a different perspective. And you don't even have to agree with it, but you make your decision so much smarter and so much more reliable yeah. if you take the time to just reflect on it from different positions. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we do that sometimes with Hatch, where we train people to counterthink, you yeah. know, just by challenging their own ideas on what is really a good strategy, just training yourself in counter-thinking makes your mind more flexible, which yeah. is something... Well, yeah, and yeah. another thing what I find really um, interesting is also that we feel that the moment we there is someone with a different opinion than we have, we feel the urge to or convince the other from your own perspective, saying, no, this is the right, right way to think about this. Um, 
or that at least we agree on it. But most of the time, it's not so much about finding common ground. That would be perfect, of course. If there's a beautiful compromise, it's, it's, it's amazing. But it's also just changing your own position towards the other, towards the person that's actually vocalizing this different perspective. And that's, that's most of the time way more fruitful than to try to change your own mindset about something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, there was this one philosopher, Sullivan, and she said, it's not so much about converting your opinions, it's about converting your attitude towards the other person. You don't have to agree necessarily, but you, you have to see the other as, as smart, as morally right, as equal as you are. Yeah, and I think you say something really important there. So instead of say, you know, I'm just selling my pastries as the manager, but I have a person in my staff and he or she says, you know what, I'm, I'm not feeling as respected or seen or whatever. So instead of saying, oh, but you are, you shouldn't feel like that, we're all equals, I should probably open up to the idea that maybe he or she is actually right. And then ask questions or allow myself to doubt perhaps even, is that what you're saying? Would you, yeah. would you agree? And I think that we shouldn't um, underestimate how hard these conversations are. Yeah. Right. It's it's hard for people. It's hard because you you, you have to be critical towards yourself and, and there's so the much shame as well. Right. Shame, you don't want to there's be exclusive. easily a feeling of guilt or you're you're afraid that you say something wrong and you will do obviously you know. And there was one person that said like there's such a big difference between what the one says and the other one hears, and even you know allowing that in like allowing the uh, the possibility that I say something and you, your reception of it is completely different than what I, I try to say. Yes. Yeah. But if it's only about us, then I will defend myself saying, no, but that's not what I said. And you will say, yeah, but that's what I heard. So, yeah. uh, and, and you get into a very, you know, a conversation with lots of tension. Yeah. And tension is not bad, but it is, we tend to personalize it so easily. Whereas if you would see it as you bring in this perspective, this is where I come from. How can we solve this? Yeah. It, it, yeah. I even know people who, who give a word to that. So instead of saying you have that perspective, they say there is now in this space, this perspective, and there is this perspective. So they objectify it. So they decouple it sort yeah. of. of the, yeah. yeah. And then how do we, how do we come to somewhat of a solution where everybody's happy, which is also interesting. I have, you already gave a lot of tips for like uh, books that you, or, or names that were important. Do you have a book, a podcast or a film or a quote that inspires you a lot and that people might find interesting? Yeah, there's, there's many, but I think what I find really interesting is that I was working on this book for over three years and finally my editor, she came up with this, this podcast and I never listened to it. I knew that it existed, but I didn't make the time to actually listen to it. And it's a brilliant podcast and it's called Nice White Parents. Um, I think it's also made in 2018 or 19. It's, it's slightly older, but it's done by a journalist from the NPR and it's it's so funny because she zooms into one school in Brooklyn, in New York, and it is an international school. And suddenly a group of Canadian Americans decide to send their kids there. It's not a, not a particularly good school. You know how competitive they are in the States about the grading and uh, the reputation of schools. 
But that group of white people with all the good intentions, they completely take over that school. Um, and it leads to so many bizarre situations. For example, that they want to introduce a French curriculum. Yeah, that might be relevant for your white Canadian kid, but like the, the Hispanics that were there, the Latinx, I should say, or the black kids that were there with like immense different backgrounds, different languages, different cultural settings. You're like, why do we need to learn French? There's, there's no need. But the, the, the sad part about this is the white parents also came with money and money is power. And the, the director of that school was already so happy that people actually wanted to go to her school and she could, you know, step up into the, the big hierarchy of how, how well your school is, is rated. Yeah. Um, she was eager. She was willing to just facilitate whatever the wishes were of that new nice white parent group. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. it. Sounds like a really good it's tip. It's confrontational, but real, real interesting. We'll put it hear. into show notes. Thank you very much. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Unmachine Yourself podcast, this time with Martina Beyerman. If you found this story as inspiring um, and insightful and confrontational, maybe, as I did, then do please share it with your own network and get the ripple effect going, because we really need more people to think and act upon this important topic. Um, you'd also make us really happy with a review in iTunes, simply because that makes the podcast easier to find for people who do not yet know it. And if you want to receive letters from the future, including tips for nice podcasts, including music, including art, including recipes from the future, then please do check imhatch.com um, and find the free letters from the future button there. Until next time, bye.